Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, May 20th, we're studying Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Is there anyone in Jerusalem who knows the Lord's justice and truth? Jeremiah sees that the apostasy of the people of Judah isn't limited to the ignorant. Even the leaders of the people have rebelled against the one true God. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks, Tim. Good to be on with you. So we're starting Jeremiah chapter 5 today, Pastor. Let's talk a little context. What do we need to know about the prophet, his ministry, where we've been in the book so far to help us into the verses we've got today? Yeah, Jeremiah is, um, Jeremiah's ministry, if you want to use that term, his prophetic period kind of spans a a very crucial event in the Old Testament that um, is probably not as well known as the Exodus, right? If you think of major uh, Old Testament events, the Exodus um, is bookended by the exile. And Jeremiah is a prophet right before the exile and then even into the first part of um, the exile when um, God turns his people over to um, Nebuchadnezzar. So the, the other prophets who are active at the same time as Jeremiah include Ezekiel, um, I think even probably Daniel to some extent, maybe his early, you know, the early chapters of the book of Daniel, Jeremiah may still be alive at that point. Um, but Jeremiah, unlike Ezekiel and Daniel, is never in Babylon. Jeremiah is always in Jerusalem. And I think at, a, at some point he goes away to Egypt, doesn't he? Doesn't yeah, he, he right. leaves yeah, once the exile ha- hits. But um, that all happens, I think, later in the book of Jeremiah than what we're looking at today. Um, what we're looking at is um, what was what was Jerusalem like leading up to the exile? And um, it actually, you know, if you look at the, the history of the kings of Israel, or of Judah especially, we're talking about, um, Jeremiah's ministry happens during the, the reign of a good, quote-unquote, good king. Um, King Josiah is a reforming king. Um, And yet, even though Josiah carries out great reforms, um, what you find is that um, it's not enough, right? The the apostasy, the unfaithfulness is too deep for kind of surface reforms to actually fix, and so exile is needed. Mm -hmm. And and the reason to, to go into all of that, I know that's a lot of context here, but the book of Jeremiah, uh, by and large, is this, um, if you don't know that history, it just sounds like God is, is just mad at his people. And, you know, what's the big deal? But when you know that history of just this long, slow, steady decline, the book actually takes on much more of like a pleading tone, the Lord lamenting, Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations too, lamenting his people's unfaithfulness. And we've even heard some of Jeremiah's own lamenting in the book already. As you mentioned, unlike Ezekiel and Daniel, Jeremiah serves as a prophet to Judah and Jerusalem. There in Judah and Jerusalem, he goes through the events. And we've gotten a feel for, as he says it back in chapter four, you know, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Jeremiah is 
experiencing the grief of living in the midst of this sinful people and the grief of of knowing what's going to happen in the destruction yeah. that's coming with Babylon. And so we do, I mean, that that does give that this book a certain flavor. He's often called the weeping prophet for that reason. And you can feel that, you know, he's not, he's he speaks God's judgment with all of its severity, but he does so at the same time grieving over what he sees in the people and knowing what's going to happen to his own homeland. Yeah, it's not like dad just came home from a bad day of work and he, you know, his patience is thin and he flies off the handle when his kids, you know, uh, you know, do the slightest thing that's wrong. Um, and, you know, as you read and as you're going to go through Jeremiah, um, the prophet um, who's inspired by the spirit actually becomes the, um, you know, the human kind of representation of God's weeping and God's lament and his sorrow that his people who he's fed and who he brought out of X out of Egypt, um, that they've gone, you know, so they've become so unfaithful. You mentioned earlier, Jeremiah's got this long ministry, starts during the reign of good King Josiah, and then continues through the end of the people of Judah and Jerusalem through their last not good kings, evil kings. And and Jeremiah is a very long book. We're near the beginning of this book. Is there anything in the text that we've got for today that might you might be able to place it a little more specifically into one of the reigns of the kings that seem earlier in Jeremiah's ministry, maybe closer to the, the destruction? What do you think? I think it's I think it's early, and the reason I say that is because um, when you look at um, I guess it's Second Kings where you have Josiah's ministry. So Josiah becomes a king when he's eight years old. And he's famous for um, discovering, finding the Bible. <laughs> they had lost it, right? And yeah. it's called the Book of the Law, right? But he sends these guys to clean out the temple. So he, you know, he's he's got some good motivations. Um, but what they find as they're cleaning the temple is the Book of the Law. And I think that in Second Kings, I, would, I don't have it in front of me. I think that happens in the 18th year of his reign. And at the beginning of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is called in the 13th year of Josiah's reign. So my my kind of working hypothesis here, Tim, is that in chapter 5, we're still, yes, Josiah is king, um, and he's been king for a while, but it's it's pre his his reforms. And as you go through the book, what you're going to, you do eventually come to some point where Josiah's reforms have been carried out, um, and yet it's still not enough. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've seen a, a few hints of that later, or earlier even. There's been talk of Jeremiah, he'll say that the people have returned, but only in pretense. That I think you kind of said it earlier, yeah. you know, that you get the feeling that Josiah did what he did. And I, I think the historical accounts that you get in Second Kings and in Second Chronicles also, they don't, at least when I read them, I don't doubt Josiah's sincerity. But it seems, given what Jeremiah preaches, that at least some of the people didn't didn't do it from their heart. You know, I mean, think of the way Isaiah will preach, and Jesus picks up those words that their hearts are far from, even though their lips are saying the right thing. It seems that the same thing happens in Jeremiah, and and even even then, after Josiah, it all comes unraveled. And so, yeah, this this does seem to be a, a rather early part of Jeremiah's ministry. Any more yeah. introductory thoughts? Well, as you're describing that, it makes me think of, um, you know, we're pastors, so we like, we <laughs> we read strange things. But if you read the preface to the small catechism, <laughs> um, Luther talks about going on these visitations after the Reformation has been underway for, I think, like 10 years, you know, since if, right. you, if you start at the 95 Theses. And what he finds is, even though, you know, in theory, 
all the churches in you know Germany or, or in these different regions are quote unquote Lutheran, people don't know the Lord's Prayer. They don't know the Ten Commandments. They don't. They can, the priests can barely say Mass in Latin. You know, their their Latin is almost unintelligible, which the people don't know anyways because no one speaks Latin really. Um, so that might help people just kind of think of well, what, if Josiah's reform was so great, why? Is Jeremiah still, you know, lamenting over the people? It's because things can happen on a surface level that don't actually touch the heart. Hmm. Let's see what happens here in Jeremiah 5, then. We're beginning at verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. Though they say, as the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock. They have refused to repent. Then I said, these are only the poor. They have no sense, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I will go to the great and will speak to them, for they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. Therefore, a lion from the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? Go up through her vine rows and destroy, but make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, He will do nothing. No disaster will come upon us nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. That's the text for today, Jeremiah 5, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Apple, that very first verse where Jeremiah says, run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, he's looking for someone, looking for someone who does justice and seeks truth. Sounds like a bit of an echo of what happens between Abraham and the Lord back in Genesis 18 leading up to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, it's very similar. Um, the language is almost exactly the same, and I think that that's intentional um, too. And and so you have, but what's what's being um, brought out there is that what was true in Sodom and Gomorrah has tragically, and and I, that might even be too light of a word for this, has unthinkably become true of Jerusalem. Um, so, just to kind of refresh that story, God. Um, visits Abraham, and maybe you've seen there's a famous icon of the three visitors who visit uh, Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre, and then God says, I'm going to tell, Abraham is my friend, so I'm going to tell him what I'm going to do. And so he tells Abraham, uh, I'm going to search out Sodom and Gomorrah and see if I can find anyone there who is righteous. And there you get the great, you know, the quote unquote bargaining where Abraham says, well, what if you only find, you know, 50? What if you only find 40, 30, 10, 5? And the implication is that Abraham is kind of bargaining down God. But what happens is, of course, um, 
none are found. Not, no one is righteous there. And so the fire and brimstone fall from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, which in other places is the, the pinnacle or the, um, the primary example of that exceedingly um, wicked city. But now that's happening in Jerusalem. And it's un- it is unthinkable, but that is how it. That's what's happened here. So Sodom and Gomorrah, at least I think in popular knowledge of what their sin was, often I think they're known for the sin of homosexuality. That's what comes to mind. Is that the comparison that's being made to what's happening in Judah and Jerusalem, or is there something? What's this wickedness that's being? You know, you have Sodom and Gomorrah, and there, there's kind of this. You know, this is the example of wickedness. Now yeah. you've got Jerusalem. What's the what's the comparison? Well, I, it doesn't, he mentions sexual sins later, right? He uses this comparison, and we'll get into this, with um, adultery, um, with with going into the house of whores. So there is, there certainly are surely sexual problems in Jerusalem, but I think it's, it's not exactly saying um, everything that was happening in Sodom is happening now in Jerusalem, but it's a way of magnifying um, the sin of Jerusalem in becoming unfaithful they have essentially become, even if they differ in terms of the, the, you know, the actual sins, they might not be Sodomites, but they are behaving like Sodom. Spirit, you know, spiritually, they are equivalent to Sodom. Sure. And I think, I mean, what, what we've seen so far in the book of Jeremiah is that he, while he's made that comparison previously, and we can probably talk about this a bit more later, that their adultery or idolatry and adultery are used as the, you know, that it is the idolatry that's the big thing for Jeremiah. He's, he's certainly talked about certain types of immorality, bad behavior, but it is the idolatry of the people that stands as sin number one and stands as their downfall and leads to any other sort of immorality. It all traces it back to that, that primary sin of idolatry. Yeah, think of maybe uh, I don't know why this comes to mind, but when you get um, if the if you're if you think of a boat um, tied up to a dock, as soon as that boat is untied from the dock, it's it's going to be adrift, right? And the waves might take one boat over to the east side of the lake, and they might take another boat to the west side of the lake. It just kind of depends on which way the wind is blowing. But the point is, once you're unhooked, once you're unhinged from faithfulness to the Lord. Well, you're going to be you're going to be blown about, um, you know, like St. Paul says, by every wind of false doctrine, which leads then to, um, you know, different false practices. Now, in, in Genesis 18, if you want to say it this way, Abraham bargains God down to 10. He says, you know, if there's 10, will you destroy the city? And the Lord said, for the sake of 10, I won't. Again, 10 were not found here. It's just one. You know, and again, I, it makes yeah. me wonder a little bit about the timing again. You know, it's like Josiah is not mentioned as the as the one. You know, I mean, Hulda the prophetess, who, who we know from the the book of Second Kings, she's not mentioned as as the one. So apparently, there's there's not one. And you know, see if you can find one who does justice and seeks truth. So those are the the two key terms: one who does justice and seeks truth. That theme of well, they both come back up throughout this text: justice of their God this matter of being true. Justice particularly is one of those terms that gets used a lot in our world today, often in different ways than the scriptures speak. So it'd probably be good for us to spend some time defining terms. Yeah. What do you, what is the scriptural conception of justice? And then how does that compare contrast to what people are meaning by that term today? 
Yeah, justice, um, another synonym, or even it might not even be a different word, but just different English translations is righteousness. So um, anytime we're talking about um, justice, righteousness, usually as Lutherans, we think of um, justification uh, by by grace through faith, right? That's kind of important to us. <laughs> um, and when we're, when we're letting the Bible define the terms, um, justice ha- must come from God and be related to him. So maybe um, kind of a working definition for us here is conformity to God's will um, or conformity to God's law, which when we talk about justification is, of course, um, the problem is that man is not, there is none who are righteous Uh, No, not one, except for the man, Jesus Christ. And so his righteousness, his justice, his perfect life, um, conforming to the will of his father is given to us by faith. By faith, we become righteous and then start to do um, works of righteousness. However, you know, lacking they are in this world, um, that is the beginning, the new obedience that comes through faith in Christ. Now, when the I think when um, we hear people around us now, the culture, um, talk about justice, and and you can hear it in all kinds of different ways, climate justice, health justice, social justice, racial justice, the, there's very rarely um, an attempt to define that according to the Bible um, in the way that I just did, right? That we're, we're trying to have a society that is conformed to God's will, Um it's much more subjective. Um, again, maybe this that illustration I gave of the, the boat coming loose from the dock is helpful here too. Once that justice boat gets unhooked from the Bible, from God's word, well, now it's going to be defined by all kinds of different people in all kinds of different ways. And the big one that we hear a lot about now is um, equity, right? So we want to have equitable that they, it's kind of becomes a synonym for justice. Um, we're going to ensure that everyone has uh, the proper outcome. Defined by who? Well, by whoever is promoting whatever the theory is. So, I mean, with the way the world misuses this term, or at least doesn't define the term in any sort of way that would try to find it, you know, to dock at the word of God, how do, how do Christians engage in that kind of discussion? Well, I think for starters, you've got to be um, critical. (laughs) How's that for a little bit of irony? I think you need to be critical of uh, how people are using the word because the Bible is full of talk about doing justice. And so if you hear people talking about um, we want to be just, well, that sounds good, right? The Bible says that kind of everywhere. And especially in the prophets, this is a major concern and God is just, right? This is, there's no um, getting around that, but you have to be aware that people, that word is being stretched now, much like we are familiar with how the word love gets stretched. Um, So love is love. Yeah. Okay. That sounds great. But um, you know, that's not the way that we as Christians, we don't understand um, love the way that the world does. And the same thing now is becoming true with justice. So first of all, just being critical, being aware that when people use a word that you're familiar with, they don't always mean the same thing. Hmm. Um, And secondly, just 
than being informed by God's word and and letting his word fill your mind and the definitions of what justice looks like, you know, being familiar with things as simple as the Ten Commandments and thinking through, you know, what does this mean? This is standard um, kind of catechetical Lutheran confirmation stuff, but it's important for us, um, especially now, if we're going to engage in these conversations about what makes something just or unjust, well, we want to have our, our terms given by God and not by some other, you know, a, a critical theory. Mm. I mean, so, so okay, be critical of, of what you're hearing from the world. Pay attention. What do they actually mean by the word justice? And then evaluate that based on how you've been informed by what the word justice means according to the word of God in, in such a way that we don't have to shy away from justice language, right? I mean, even though sometimes the world may take that word from us and fill it with an unbiblical thought, we can still, I think, hold on to the word and speak the truth of what that word actually means. I mean, kind of like, you know, sometimes the words born again, Lutherans shy away from talking about born again because that term has been co-opted by some that fill it with a meaning that's not very biblical. I don't think we should give it up entirely. And, And I think the same could be said of the word justice as well. Let's let's try to speak back the truth of what justice actually is to expose where sometimes the world says something is just and in fact it's not according to God's standards. Let's try to I don't know, maybe maybe that's a losing battle, but I think it I think we should do well, it. Well, yeah, I think we have to because the words matter, right? And the words, the way that we talk in I mean, it's going to inform how we think and it's going to inform how we act and if we just kind of say, well, you know, the world talks about love, um, you know, um, in the discussion about marriage, right? So if if we say, well, um, you know, they've taken the word love from us, so I guess we just can't um, use, we can't talk about love. Well, guess what? You're going to, what are you going to say? You know, um, and if we sort of surrender, if we continue to surrender words, we're going to run out of English words. And what are we going to do then? Are we just going to all start speaking Greek and say, well, we really mean dikaios and dikaiosune. That's not going to work. So we have to fight for the meaning of words um, because we are in, we want people to be not just um, we, we don't want a sort of surface level righteousness. We want the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that comes from his spirit. And so we got to talk about um, real justice because that, I mean, the terrible, um, it, it's worse than an irony, right, Tim, is that the, if the world imposes its view of justice, that is not God's view, it's not going to actually be just. It's not, you're not going to establish a just society apart from the just God, um, just like you're not going to establish a loving society apart from the love of God, because there is it, it's um, you can't have one without the other. So to try to put this back now into into Jeremiah's day you know, again, Jeremiah says, you know, look around Jerusalem, run all around, look in the streets, looking for a man who does justice and then also seeks truth. And maybe we can pick up more about the truth aspect of this on the other side of the break. But this this one who does justice, what what is Jeremiah looking for? What does this one person look like? He's probably looking for somebody like um, like James is looking for when he talks about, um, you know, someone who doesn't just say, oh, yeah, I believe in the Lord, but someone who actually um, shows their faith by what they do. Um, so maybe you could kind of 
um, substitute in there for justice, someone who um, does the commandments of the Lord, someone who walks in the ways of the Lord, someone who is um, even trying right, to honor God's name, to remember the Sabbath. I mean, the, in later, when, uh, when the people come back from exile, it's interesting to read like in Nehemiah and Ezra um, towards the end, when they're looking at the state of Jerusalem, even after the exile, I think this comes out, I think I'm remembering this from Nehemiah, um, he is completely disturbed at how the Sabbath day is being observed, because it's not being observed at all. And so there, there are probably certain markers or certain kind of um, litmus tests, shall we say, that you could say, you know, is there anyone who is going to church <laughs> on Sunday, you know, that's putting it in, in our terms. But for Jeremiah, is there anyone who's observing the Sabbath the way that it ought to be done? Is there anyone who's honoring his parents? Like, you know, just that, that's litmus test stuff. Are the people faithful to their marriage vows? Um, or is everyone lusting after his neighbor? Right. And all of that, all of those actions do come out of a true faith and who the Lord is, what he's done for his people. I mean, as you're talking there about you know, remembering the Sabbath day, just thinking through some of that historical context, it's in Josiah's day where for the first time in a long, long time, the Passover is held, you know I mean? And so it's like, again, with some historical context, maybe that's kind of what, what is going through Jeremiah's mind. We haven't celebrated the Passover in forever. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My wife was just saying she teaches Sunday school here and the kids are doing um, the little ones are are doing these same stories. They're in the same time period of the Bible, and she said, "Is this right? They didn't observe the Passover for you know however many years." And I said, "I guess not." Which is you know, could you imagine? We we um, we broke our backs to observe Easter in some sh- way, shape, or form, mm-hmm. right? And um, to just skip it, yeah, we'll get to it next year. I mean, if that is happening in the hearts of God's people, if that's the attitude of the priests. Um, you know, this is not a good sign, right? Mm, yeah. And so he doesn't find the one who does justice, seeks truth. We'll pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at the first part of Jeremiah 5 with Pastor David Appled. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, May 20th. We're studying Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor David Appled. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appled, prior to the break, we were talking about Jeremiah looking for this man, the one who does justice. He also seeks truth. And this matter of truth comes up more than once in our text for today, particularly in the making of vows. Verse two, for example, people are saying, as the Lord lives, but they swear falsely. And again, that matter of truth comes up here again at the beginning, as well as the end of the text when we're talking about false prophets. Uh, what is the matter of, of truth? Why is this so important? And, and why is it the matter of vows? How does that play into this? 
Yeah, I, I mean, you can think of in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, do not swear by the temple, um, nor, I, I can't think of it now, nor by the, the altar that is in the temple, um, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. And um, that's certainly appropriate. Um, but his point there is not that vows in and of themselves are wrong. I think when Jesus says that, his point is you should live as if all of your life was under a vow, right? Um, so every time you say yes to something, you should think I, it's as if you're making a vow. Um, now, the, the making of vows and that being kind of the litmus test, to use language that I used before for seeking the truth, just think of um, I, we don't know exactly what kind of vows Jeremiah is talking about here, but if you think in our day and age, Tim, if you think of the vows that we that people make in our time, um, you there's not very many, right? You have uh, a vow. We were talking during the break about confirmation. When you were confirmed in the Lutheran Church, you made a, a vow. Um, when you become a member of a church, if it's not through confirmation, maybe just as you're an adult and you go through new member instruction, there's a, a promise connected with baptism. There's a vow there. Um, and then probably the one that's most readily um, significant for people is the, the marriage vow. And those so even though we have very few vows, it's it's a very serious thing. And if you think of um, just how easy it is for people to break big vows, um, how easy it becomes to break a big vow, well, then even the smaller vows that might be in place in Jeremiah's time, kind of formal vows, or the informal ones that we have, when those things become easily broken, um, society kind of starts to crumble, Right. So a, a, maybe a silly example, but think how easy it is to get out of doing something that you've said that you would do. Even something like, you know, your friends invite you over for um, a barbecue, right? Okay, it's not sinful to say, no, you know, I can't come. It's, that's not wrong, but it's so easy to do. And it's especially easy now that we have um, all kinds of ways to message each other. I don't even have to call you <laughs> to tell you you know, to like, you know, hear your voice say, oh, I'm really disappointed. I can just send you a message. Hey, I'm not coming. And if you question, and would you even question me on that? Probably not, right? Because it's so easy to break a commitment. And the the point, again, that's a silly example because it's not sinful. But if it's, if it, if you live in a world where making a promise and breaking a promise is as easy as, hey, I'm not coming over to the barbecue, um, what's going to actually hold things together? Um, you're pretty soon going to live in a world where um, you can't count on anything, and that's there's chaos and confusion that comes in because of that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think it, it, can, it can work both ways, where if we start breaking the really big vows, then we have no problem breaking the smaller ones. But also I think the reverse can happen too, where we, we start working our way up. Well, I, I told you I was going to come to your barbecue, and now I'm not. And that leads me on a on an upward path. You know, I, a lot of little breaking of vows leads to the. I think it can work both ways. Yeah, and so take it from okay, that's a silly one, right? The barbecue, but um, you know, if you if you say, hey, I'll be there to help you, you know, move that piano. Oh, sorry, something else came up. You know, I can't make it for that. Um, you know, I I prompt, and then you think of how that kind of erodes a person's character, right? If you, if you think of it in terms of character, you can see, like you're saying, 
little disobedience or little breaking of a vow kind of greases the skids or paves the way for bigger and bigger and bigger. So then when you hear Jesus say things like, he who is faithful with little will be faithful with much, you can see, okay, that's that's really actually quite true. And the more I become accustomed to going back on my word, the easier it is for me to do it. And once I do it once, twice, three times, um, you know, it, it just becomes a habit, right? And that, that become that can become a problem if in a workplace that can be, if you've ever had a, an unreliable employee or worked beside somebody, you know, would never be any of our listeners who would be guilty of this, right? Uh, but that, that can really, um, destroy, uh, um, the workplace. And it, it does the same thing in families and it does the same thing. This is very much in our wheelhouse. It does the same thing in the church. Well, and, and what, what makes it even worse in Jeremiah's day is that the people are making these promises that ha- they have no intention to keep. And then they do so in the Lord's name. So they're, they're using the Lord's name as the Lord lives They're You know, they are using God's name to back up a lie. And I think, I mean, and I'm, I'm just looking through the text here, this ends up affecting the way they think about the Lord too. So in, in verse two, you know, at, they're saying as the Lord lives, but they're swearing falsely. By verse 12, the prophet says they've spoken falsely of the Lord and said he will do nothing. So so suddenly I, I'm not keeping my promises that I'm taking in the Lord's name. And now, now I'm transferring that thought to God Himself. Well, He said it, but but He's not going to do it either. And of course, yeah. for Jeremiah, that I mean, in this case, they're they're going to ignore His preaching that destruction is coming. It's a it's a recipe for disaster in a lot of a lot of ways. Yeah the the kindness of the Lord, which is meant to lead us to repentance, this is in Second Peter, actually leads to um, you know scoffing at the Lord. So well. Hey, you know, I made a vow at confirmation, but you know, I didn't really follow through with it. And look, lightning didn't strike me down. So, you know, if I don't go to church every Sunday, what's the big deal? If I don't go to church every once a month, what's the big deal? If I, you see how it goes, right? If I don't go to church once a quarter, you know, <laughs> I don't think anybody thinks through it like that. But there is this. Hey, you know, I made a vow, and then I broke the vow, and. I'm still alive, you know, and I don't feel like I've, you know, lost out on anything. And yet, again, to go back to my illustration here, the boat is drifting from the dock. Right. Or even, I mean, and to use an illustration, because, you know, pastors always like to talk about people not coming to church. But, you know, I mean, the, the illustration of a husband who's only unfaithful once a month. You know, I mean, like there's another vow breaking. Usually we don't talk that way about marriage. I hope we, we shouldn't. That, I think that's a little more shocking, but, I, you know, it kind of yeah. gets to, the, I think, to maybe that's why I, it hits home a little bit harder because like, oh, you don't go to church once a month. Well, of course, you're a pastor. You know, you, you always talk about that. So do I. Well, what about your marriage vow? Is that one important to keep? Yeah. Yeah. So, Pastor Apple, this, this matter of, of truth Speaking truly, the Lord's justice, this comes up throughout the text. Jeremiah is going to, to use this to preach pretty harshly. One of the things that, that comes up, and we've heard Jeremiah say this before, is that the Lord is attempted to discipline his people, but they're not listening. You know, you struck them down, they felt no anguish. You consumed them, they refused to take correction. They made their faces harder than rock, they refused to repent. I get the sense in, in verses four and five, Jeremiah, I, I think this is Jeremiah talking in verses four and five. And it's almost like Jeremiah just can't believe that everyone is like this. 
you know, those, that's only the poor, the ignorant ones. They don't know the way of the Lord. But if I go and talk to the great ones, surely they'll know. And as it turns out for Jeremiah's day, again, going back to the very beginning, there's just nobody. There's nobody there who, who knows this justice and truth of the Lord. Yeah, right. He's He goes from like, well, you know, maybe there's some people who you wouldn't expect them to get it. But there's others who, okay, let me go to the people who I would expect to find justice and I would expect to find at least some semblance of keeping the truth. And lo and behold, it's the, the problem is the same in both places. It's not just a matter of, you know, lack of education. It's a, it's a matter of a sinful will. It's a matter of uh, these sinful habits becoming ingrained. And that, that unwillingness to accept correction is, um, you know, you can see, you can see this in the Bible. There's you know Pharaoh comes to mind, um, but what happened to Pharaoh with the hardening of the heart also now is happening within Israel that they have become harder and harder and harder. Such that you know at this point even Josiah's reforms, which you'd think this will soften up the people, well it's it's too little, too late kind of a thing, and so there's going to be major correction that's going to come. Right. I mean, and that's, you know, verse, verse six, Jeremiah uses the language of, of animals. We've, we've heard him do this several times in, in variety of ways here. It's, it's animals who will destroy. And I, I think there's, you know, in verse five, the people, it says they've broken the yoke. So imagine, you know, two oxen who are yoked together in the safety of the, the barn. Well, the oxen break the yoke, they start wandering out into the wilderness and what happens? Well, here comes the lion, the wolf and the leopard, right? And, and this is the I think this is Jeremiah talking about the destruction that's going to come from Babylon. And again, if this is early in Jeremiah's ministry, the people, and we know this from later, you know, people are like, ah, we're, we're okay. And, and Jeremiah, he, he keeps preaching that destruction is in fact coming. Yeah. Think of Daniel's vision of the four great kingdoms that are going to, um, kind of ravage God's people. It's, it's animal, animalistic language that he describes the, um, what the, the, um, the Persians and the um, Greeks and the Romans. So um, that's, yeah, you're right. The the symbolism of Jeremiah is um, he's looking to the animals and seeing in the animals a, um, a kind of metaphor or a, a symbol of Babylon. Hmm. Now, as, as the text continues, you know, how, how can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me. They've sworn. There's this language of swearing again by those who are no gods. And then the image of adultery comes up again in into verse seven and into verse eight as well. Here, the image of of stallions again plays into this matter of adultery and idolatry. How do these things go together? Yeah, well, that's that's always the question to me because they always go together, and so you want to say, well, why? And it just you know, as creative as we might be, we're not that creative, right? So when when idolatry sets in, the same thing happens in Romans 1. Um, it leads to or it manifests itself in sexual depravity and sexual perversions. And there's, I, as I've thought about this myself, I, I wonder if it's just because that is um, such a powerful drive in people. You know, the, the sexual drive is um, certainly a powerful one. And so when things go haywire, the more powerful passions, the more powerful desires get a hold of people in a more powerful way. Um, so that may be why it, it comes out. Um, it's also the case that those kinds of things are the ones that um, I think really, uh, when they take hold of, of individuals or even when they take hold of um, 
you know, groups of people, a society, those sexual sins kind of wreak the most havoc. You know what I mean? And so um, when when adultery becomes rampant, um, it has a, a more a much more profound um disintegration of the culture than say if um if lying became rampant mm. although that would i mean it's hard for me to say that because that it would that would still destroy things but in a more subtle way mm. well and with with what jeremiah is preaching here particularly verse eight this very vivid image of the the well-fed lusty stallions each neighing for his neighbor's wife you know in in the past in the first four chapters of jeremiah we've seen this idolatry and adultery connected and it seems more metaphorical that when, when he's talking about adultery, it seems like he's really talking about idolatry here and, and not every case, but in other places too, but here particularly, this seems like it's, there's actual adultery happening here, not just idolatry. Yeah. The, and again, the two always go together and some people will, will just kind of one way to explain this is to say, well, the, the other gods, you know, the Baals and the Asherah, they often had, um, um, cultic prostitution that was part of that form of worship. And I, I just, I think that's probably true, but the way Jeremiah is talking here, he's not saying simply, you know, you're visiting the cult prostitutes. It's the people take home that same, um, you know, if you become a Baal worshiper and the, the, well, maybe think of it this way. We, we sometimes say this, right. As pastors, the way you worship influences what you believe. And the way you worship influences what you believe. Take it one step further, then influences how you live. Okay, so if you are worshiping the Lord who is utterly faithful to his people, okay, monogamy becomes and, and sexual chastity, marital chastity, that's just the way that it needs to be. But if you're worshiping um, Baal, or my, I read the Greek, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do this too much, right, Tim? But um, I read the stories of the Greek gods with my kids. And I mean, the Greek gods are full of all kinds of, you know, they're always visiting the the people of the earth and sleeping with all sorts of different people. So if that's how the gods are, well, what's wrong with us doing that too? Mm, right. I mean, you, this is a, a, you see this in other places in the scriptures as well, that you, you end up becoming what you worship, which is of course yeah. the problem with idols is that they can't see and hear and talk. And I mean, they do all of these, they are doing sins. And so those who worship them do the same sins. I, I had this, this thought, it occurred to me in, as we were talking about second Peter previously on sharper iron, when Peter describes the false teachers and particularly in chapter two of second Peter, he really spends a lot more time talking about the false sinful lives of those false teachers. He doesn't give quite as much detail about what the false teaching is, but he really details their sins. And many of them are these same sort of sexual perversions that, that we see here in Jeremiah as well. And I mean, it got me to thinking to try to connect this to what we were saying earlier about what justice is in our world today, how we see these sins in our world today, these perversions of God's gifts. And we need to make sure that we keep that connected to the matter of idolatry that, that when we think about, okay, what are, you know, I, I look around me and I see all this perversion in the world around me. How am I going to begin to address that? It's not just by giving the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery, but it is about giving true religion, you know, the, the religion of grace and, and showing people how their idolatry is ultimately what's led them into all of these variety of immoralities that we see today. Yeah. The, uh, the call to repentance 
is as much needed in our time as Jeremiah's. And that repentance, not just the surface like reforms of Josiah, because Josiah can enforce a certain compliance with God's law, right? So Josiah, and it's it's good that he does this. This is what kings should do. He destroys the high places and the altars, and he, you know, he he forces compliance um, in the the how worship ought to be. And yet he can't. What he can't do is actually change the heart of his people. Only the Spirit can do that. And so, um, you know, if you're a faithful Christian listening to this, this when you look around at the world. Um, as it is now, and you say, well, there's nothing that we can do. Or if you want, you know, let's get some forced compliance. That, you know, maybe I'm talking from myself here, um, recognizing that um, that's not the solution, but that the solution is the Spirit of God at work in the hearts of individuals. Well, okay, I we have some really great promises about that. And we have we can pray for that and hope for that and work for that within our own congregations and um, hope that and pray that that spreads on a, on a wider level. Right. I mean, it's like, as you said, it's not bad that, that Josiah enforces what he does. That's certainly a positive thing that people show up to celebrate the Passover after however many years, that's a good thing. But if, if it just stays there, then, as that's where Jeremiah comes in, you know, and, and same, same for us today, how wonderful it would be if our government recognized marriage for what it truly is and, and not allowed other things to be called marriage when in fact they are not, that would be great. But we also can't sort of fool ourselves into thinking that that outward compliance necessarily means inward faith, inward trust. And, and if we don't let the word of God go to the, the true matter of, of the heart and, and go to the matter of it's ultimately about our idolatry, then we can have that our compliance, but we haven't gotten the faith. And, and that's, I mean, the Lord wants his word to do all of that work all the way to the heart. Yeah. And that, you know, you know how, you know, when you're actually, um, talking about what the Bible is talking about is when your discussion, um, leads into the next couple of verses. So look at how, look at how Jeremiah ends with this. There is, certainly a strong word of a threat here and a judgment, you know, destroy the, the plants in the vineyard, but don't make a full end, right? So yes, there is a hope, but that hope is going to be realized through, you know, if the people are saying, God never, God doesn't see, he's not going to do anything. Okay, well, now God is going to do something. It's not going to be pleasant, but it's going to be the thing that they need to experience. So um, there comes a time and a place where the exile has to happen where that judgment has to fall. And then the people have to realize, right, okay, those things that we were saying, the prophets are all just speaking wind, right? Jeremiah is full of hot air. No, he was right. And that, you know, the only way for that to happen is that they have to experience um, the Nebuchadnezzar coming in and burning the, burning the city. I mean, so this, this text, now you've, you've pointed to maybe the one half a verse that has some gospel in it, if, if we want to use law and gospel here. And I think, you know, and this is a challenge when we're reading a book like Jeremiah straight through 52 chapters over the course of, of three months, not every text is going to have that. And so we kind of want to, I mean, I know I thinking, maybe this is just me thinking as a preacher, I, I want to get to the gospel, but I mean, what do we, what do we do with a text like this where there is, it seems so, so little hope. Well, I think you, you've got to see that the, um, the hope comes through the cross, 
right? Or um, that that might come off as a cliche, but that the way that God disciplines his people, the way that he's going to awaken them um, and bring about their conversion, their reconversion, is that he's actually going to um, do some hard things to them. He's going to bring in Nebuchadnezzar, and that's not a mistake, but that's this is the very thing that they need. So um, the severity of God and his um, his discipline is not, it may not be pleasant. Um, it may not be gospel in the sense of it makes you feel good, um, but it is important. It's necessary. You have to go through it. Um, and and sometimes, you know, when we preach, when we want to preach the gospel in such a way that, you know, we're going to um, just say the law makes people feel bad. And then we come in and say, but the gospel makes you feel good. That's there's some truth to that, but that's not really um, conversion. That's not really going to be repentance and and real faith. I, I, I'm kind of struggling for words. I think you can hear me there, Tim. Um, is this is that making sense? I, I think so. I mean, so it's not it's not law makes you feel bad, gospel makes you feel good. Although sometimes that that does happen. I mean, right. it, you know, I I hope that I. I feel somewhat good after I hear that Jesus died for me and I probably should feel somewhat bad, you know, somewhat, I guess when, when I've heard I've sinned and I've, I deserve hell, but it's, it's more, it's not just about, you know, stirring up those feelings inside of me, but it is about that word of God actually working in me, repentance, a contrition, and then true faith in Christ. And, and both of those things need to happen. That's how the word of God works. Yeah, and he he works through. If you think of you know in Jeremiah's day and age, um, the exile, you can't have restoration without exile, right? You can't have the people turning like they do in Nehemiah and Ezra, and you know turning to the Lord with all their hearts to the point where um, you know they they will make sacrifices to their own houses to rebuild the temple. Now they didn't do that right away. You remember the prophet has to come and I think it's uh, is that Haggai who has yeah. to kind of say, "Hey, what are you doing living in paneled houses when the house of the Lord is not finished?" But my point is if if there had never been an exile, they never would have rebuilt the temple. They would have just continued on saying the right things, the temple, the temple, the temple. Um, as the Lord lives, you know, they would keep saying these things, but the heart would be far from them. So, um, yes, God sometimes deals harshly with us. He came down and dislocated Jacob's hip. Um, he, you know, he think of on an individual level, think of Job and the book of Job. Um, but it's through those crosses, it's through those hardships that faith is actually um, strengthened and, and made real. With about two minutes left, Pastor Appled, final thoughts on this text. With all of this law that is here, this harsh judgment from God, help us to see see Christ. I think the 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 Lord is living, and He is not um, He is not some far distant God who who just sort of sits up in the heavens and you know looks down far on it like we're little ants here on earth. But He sees, He knows, um, and He disciplines, and that. He does those things not to punish us, not to um, not to unnecessarily afflict us, but for our good. And you can see that happening on kind of a corporate level here in this time in Israel's history. Um, I think, I mean, our listeners, I'm sure if 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 they're listening along and thinking about their own churches, there's questions like, does this happen 
with the church now? Is this, you know, are we going through something like this? And, you know, you don't want to necessarily draw one-to-one correspondence, but God does discipline us for our good. And um, the things that have happened in the life of our congregations and of our church, um, if they bring us closer to Christ, praise the Lord. You know, he can use sickness, he can use uh, a virus, he can use the uncertainties and instability of a country to actually draw us to him. Well, then it's for our good. Pastor David Appold is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us today with Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Appold, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about the book of Jeremiah, any comments about the program, download the KFUO app, use the open mic feature there, and you can record up to a 60-second message to send us your thoughts, your questions, your comments. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.